have your children's bulletin with you as we're continuing our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. This is Psalm uh, 120 through Psalm 134 that pilgrims on their way to worship in Jerusalem would sing as they went up to Jerusalem uh, several times a year. These are songs that on that journey they would sing and learn together. These are songs, and I love to think about this, that Jesus Christ our Lord as a child would hear and learn these psalms as he went with his family several times a year. And then as he himself led his disciples several times a year back to Jerusalem to worship at these festivals, they would sing these too. So it's just a good thing to think about. Wow, these are the psalms that our Lord sang as well during his time on earth. So we're in Psalm number 128 this morning. If you remember last week in Psalm 127, we saw the promise that God builds our life, that God gives us success. We saw that unless the Lord builds the house or the family or the life, those who build it labor in vain, in, in, in emptiness, it's futile. And so if God gives success... Here Psalm 128 comes and tells us, well, what does success look like? What is it that God then builds? We saw last week it's not obtained through toil. It's not obtained through wearing ourselves out, working so hard trying to perform. But instead, that through fearing the Lord and walking in faithfulness, we find that God builds our life. And so now it's going to help us define more what that means. So if you would, would you please look with me at Psalm number 128. It's printed in toto in the ESV translation for you in your bulletin. A song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, we ask that you would open this scripture up to us. Let us see Christ yet again. Show us your gospel. Pour your grace into us, Lord, for our growth and for our transformation. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was 18 years old, the the large church I was part of, they got us all together as a group of our high school uh, uh, boys, and they took a a, a part of us who had earned it, I guess you could say, on this special mission trip during our spring break. And it was a group of about 20 of us, and we were ranging in age from, from, let's see, I think we had 16-year-olds to 19-year-olds on this trip with a couple chaperones, and we went to Belize, Central America. Those of you who are older than 45, you learned it as British Honduras, your little maps when you were younger. Belize is in Central America. We got to go on this trip, and what was great is that what we got to do is we got to clear cut an acre of jungle. And because we couldn't afford to get a lot of power tools down there, we had one chainsaw, and then we had a whole mess of machetes. And so there were very soft trees in Central America. You could literally, with one good swing of machete, cut through something about you know, the size around of a softball. Any bigger than that, you needed some help. And so I had the chainsaw because it was my dad's chainsaw. And so cutting through a jungle, the chainsaw was like cutting through butter. We had a ball, clear cutting an acre. 
and then we built a church. And then in the afternoons, we'd go play basketball in the neighborhoods and try to do some evangelism. And then at night, we'd go to worship services. It was just a really good trip. And the very last day, we got to go to the beach at Belize. It was a play day. So we were there working for 10 days. We play on day 11. And we're at the, we had fun at the beach all day. And me and my best friend, we spent most of the day together. We, we, were, we were both 18. We were graduating high school in a, in a couple months thinking about our life. And he was going to go one way. I was going another. And we realized we probably never would connect with each other again. And so we just spent the day together. And I remember it was about 10 o'clock at night. And we were out at the, on this dock looking up at this Central American sky. And the stars were just magnificent. It was unbelievable. And we were just looking. We were just talking about life and everything. And he just looks at me and he goes, man how great is this trip? And that's exactly how this psalm starts out. The ESV in a rare miss doesn't quite get the translation of the Hebrew. Uh, uh, The NAS translation actually nails it. But really, this psalm opens up asking the question, man, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord? That's the sense of this psalm. The guy's just in awe. He's like, man, how awesome is this? He's reflecting on God's goodness in their life. In fact, I would encourage you, if you don't have the tradition of doing this, this is a great one to read at Thanksgiving before you eat. Just to read, your family's gathered on the table to read Psalm 128 and just rejoice in how blessed you are. So that's where we're going to go today. That's what we're going to talk about. I want to give you a theme, maybe help remember this at lunch when you're talking about the sermon or throughout family worship in the week. If you want to, if you want to remember what we're talking about today, here's where we're going. Living daily in the gospel brings the hope and happiness you want and pray for. And so we're going to see that the whole gospel for the whole person brings happiness in everyday life. So pray for that. So let's jump in and see that. The whole gospel for the whole person. So again, this psalm begins with the great question, man, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord? Who walks in his ways? It's a statement of fact asked as a question, expecting the other person to go, I know, right? It's great. It's not an either or, it's a both and. If you fear the Lord, then you will walk in his ways. If you walk in the Lord's ways, then you show you fear the Lord. We don't get to separate those two. This is the difference between being a disciple and being a groupie in church world, we'll call it. You know groupies in church world? Y'all, y'all know what groupies are, right? Okay, this means yes. Okay, this means no. Y'all still here? Okay, make sure. Good. It's cloudy outside. People are a little more drowsy. Make sure you're still here. Okay, so, because we have to remember that, the difference in disciples and groupies, because the gospel is not something that happened way back then. The gospel is that you've been made a new creature in Christ. If Christ has birthed life in you by his grace, you will have new habits. You will have a new direction in life. You will walk in the ways of the Lord because you want to. Because you've been empowered to. Because the gospel has changed you into a God-fearer. Now, as soon as I use those terms, fear, or, and hinting at walking, which is obedience to doing God's will, our sinful hearts immediately go into a works-based mentality, and we take away from grace. We think about, oh, well, he's got to tell me what I have to do to earn God's love in my life. But no, that's not what this psalm is talking about. This psalm is being a God-fearer is saturated with grace. Because it's in the gospel we see the incredible holiness of our God. It's in the gospel we see that our God is pure. He is clean. He is holy. And he will not stand sin. And before one who is so holy, 
Without the gospel, we cry out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Ah, but in the gospel, we see one so holy, and we say, Praise the Lord, because Christ was undone for me. So I can stand in his presence. Being a God-fearer is covered in grace. Because it was to uphold the holiness of God that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like us. That Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. That he died the death we should have died to make us into those who would walk in God's ways. is all about the grace of a holy God who says, you can't make it to me, so I will come to you. Being a God-fearer and walking in his ways is all about grace. We praise him for his love and grace while we fear him in his holiness. That's the whole gospel for the whole person. We can look and we can say, I am a sinner. I have been saved by grace because Jesus Christ suffered for my sins. So I wouldn't have to before a holy God. It's this wonderful balance between fear and grace. And it makes us say with our whole heart, man, how blessed is everyone who fears this God who walks in his ways? Oh, does that describe you? Does that describe your heart? Or are you more of a church groupie? There's an easy way to find out. That word blessed is a church word. If, 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 if this weren't the Bible, if we were just translating this for a modern American audience without all the baggage of, well, you've got to use religious language because it's the Bible, we would actually translate this word, you ready? Happy. That's actually how it's used more often is happy. Are you happy? Are you satisfied? Because this verse promises that everyone who fears the Lord, everyone who walks in his ways will be happy. So I ask you again, are you happy? You know, this question has divided people since creation. Every culture, including ours, has a story of what it takes to be happy. And Scripture has a story of what it takes to be happy. Everybody gives their life to the story that they think will make them happiest. And the language of this verse would take a Hebrew reader all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God himself very simply said to the man and to the woman, do this and live. Walk in my ways and live. And most of us who've been around a while, we know what happened, right? The tempter, the serpent came, and he said, has God really said? And then he goes on and says, no, that's not what God said, because God knows the moment you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. In other words, the temptation was, you will know fulfillment. You will have satisfaction. You will find happiness. You'll be free. You'll have everything you always wanted. You'll be like him without having to serve him. This will make you happy. And they took the temptation. And our culture today offers a very similar temptation. You want to know real joy, real happiness in our culture? Do it your way. Be your own person. Be authentic by following your own heart. Follow your own pleasures. Follow your own desires. Then you will get what you really want out of life. Then you will be happy. And all we have to do is, in a very Dr. Phil-esque way, look around at our culture and say, how is that working for you? 
Because people don't seem happy. See, the serpent back then and our culture today gives the same temptation. They give the same story. They say happiness and holiness are completely separate and you can never bring them together. Because holiness keeps you from being who you were meant to be. So you want to be happy, be who you're meant to be. You can't be holy, do what God says, right? Do, don't eat the fruit, and happy. You can't fear the Lord and walk in his ways. You can't do it. But this psalm says, actually, yes, happiness and holiness go right together. Those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways are happy. Just this week, I had a conversation with someone whom I love very dearly. And this person is unhappy. That's the best way to put it. After some probing questions, trying to get to the heart, I kind of just said, I'm going to take a guess here. You haven't really been spending much time reading the Bible lately, have you? You haven't spent much time in prayer lately, have you? And so you have a very cold very stagnant relationship with your heavenly father. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. But if you want to keep him at a distance after he has saved you, he will let you. He will let you live a joyous, stale Christian life. And you will go to heaven when you die, but you will have so much less of what you could have had in this life. He'll let you do that. But I challenged him and said, but you know, there is an intimacy available to you. There is an intimacy. There is a joy that awaits you if you will follow him, if you will walk in his ways, if you will pursue him, if you will seek to be more like him. He will give you the strength. He will give you joy and he will make you happy. And I say the same to all of you today. If you are in Christ... If you have confessed your faith in Christ, you look to Jesus Christ alone, you know where you will go when you die, but ultimately, if you look day in and day out, you're just not happy. It's because you've probably kept God at a distance. Stop it. Spend time daily in God's word. Follow after him. Walk in his ways. You will be happy. You will be blessed. This verse promises it. Because of his great love for sinners like us, he sacrificed his son to bring you into his family, to bring sinners close to him. He's offered the whole gospel to the whole person. Grab onto it, and you'll be happy and satisfied. Now, boys and girls, we've been using some big words like satisfied and everything. I want to make sure you get this. So look with me at your verse 1. Here's what Pastor Sean's talking about. It says this, People are really happy when they do what God says. That's it, boys and girls. It's very simple. God gives us rules because he wants us to be happy. He wants us to understand how to be happy. We really are happier, boys and girls, when we do what God says. But our hearts tell us to do the opposite, don't they? That voice in our heart says, no, we need to lie so we don't get in trouble. We need to take this because we want it. Our hearts don't want to do what God says. But isn't it great to know that God loves us in his grace and forgives us in Christ anyway? He says, this will make you happy. We don't do it. And he comes in grace and forgives us anyway. What a great God. See, God loves you enough to help you obey him, boys and girls, to help you be happy if you'll do it. Because living daily in the gospel brings hope, brings happiness. It brings the hope and the happiness you want and that you should pray for.
Next thing this psalm shows us, it shows us happiness in every day. That's a bold claim, I know. The title for this sermon, Happily Ever After, comes from this section. So I want to read it again because it sounds like a fairy tale. Look with me at verses 2 through 4 again. He says this, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed, happy, who fears the Lord. If you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, your daily work will not be toilsome, he promises. It will be satisfying. You'll be blessed. You'll be happy. Again, the original Hebrew readers would read this and their minds would go back to the garden. They would go back to right before the fall where Adam is told to take care of the garden, to tend it, to keep it. It was not toilsome. It was glorious work given before the fall. But then after the fall, work was cursed to be toilsome. But Psalm 128 says, Those who fear the Lord, for those who walk in His ways, God reverses that curse and your daily work will not be toilsome. Because of God's salvation, it has overcome the curse. You will find satisfaction in your work, in providing your daily needs. You will be happy. You will have a good life in providing for your family through your work. What a simple promise. I mean, to ask it in the way this psalm would ask the question, how great of a promise is that? Do you have that joy in your life, in your work? If not, and you are in Christ, what is it that you're missing out on? What is it that you're looking to to make you happy if this is not true for you? Or how about this? How many of your coworkers, of your neighbors, have this kind of joy and happiness in their work? I mean, no one ever gathers around in the corner to complain about the boss because everybody just loves how the job's going, right? At the water cooler, everybody kind of has this awkward silence because there's nothing to complain about. I mean, y'all work in that kind of environment, right? Everybody has this joy in their life. Or is that not accurate where you work? Yeah. Think about the hope you have to offer them in the gospel. This verse says, do we believe it? That those who trust in the Lord, those who fear him, those who walk in his ways, he comes into their life and he makes such a profound change that even with all the bureaucratic junk of any employer in modern America with HR rules has to deal with, he can turn that work into not toil, but fulfilling and satisfying. That is a huge promise, I know. And right now, many of your heart are going, nope, God's not bigger than the HR department, but I bet he can be. If you will trust God in your daily work, you will be happy. The Lord will meet your needs is the promise. I mean, our culture says you have to be more, you have to do more, you have to buy more to be happy. You have to accumulate more wealth, whatever it is. And the Bible comes along and says, actually, if you'll just do your daily work in faithfulness, God will provide your needs and you'll be happy. If only we would believe it. But that's a fairy tale, isn't it? How dare God say something like that if it's not true? But it is true. And the question, dear Christians, do you believe it? Well, verse 3 continues along with the crazy promise as happily ever after fairy tale by showing an an ideal home life. He says, man, your wife will be like a fruitful vine and, and your children will be like olive shoots, right? Who doesn't want that? 
Okay, maybe that's not quite in your wheelhouse. Let me help you out here, okay? A fruitful vine for them was a symbol of peace. It was a symbol of enjoyment. It was a symbol of prosperity. So think about an agrarian society. Think about a person laboring day in and day out in the field. What was the most joyous time of the year? It was harvest, right? When all your work came to fruition, when you had huge celebrations. What this verse is saying in this picture is saying to that laborer, Coming home to your wife is like a harvest celebration every day for those who fear the Lord. What a great promise. Forget the hard work and sweat of summer and enjoy God's gift is what he's saying. And I just have to tell you because I didn't write it, it's in there. There are intimate overtones here that the Hebrew readers would pick up on. It's very much about enjoying each other intimately, if you know what I mean. Okay, men, that's part of the happiness and blessing that God promises to those who fear him and walk in his ways. It's right there in verse 3. Hold, hold, hold on there, Pastor Sean. Are, are, are you telling me that if I'm more serious about my walk of faith, that if I spend more time in the Bible, in prayer, that I'll end up spending more time back in the bedroom? Yes, that's what it says. Try it. I know, it's, what? The Bible cares about that? And the second part of this verse confirms it. What's the fruit of such enjoyment? Lots of kids. There could not be, honestly, and seriously now, there could not be a more clear contrast between the Bible's view of children and our culture's view of children. I mean, I know it's said in jest, I know often, but how many times do we hear or have we actually used the term for children, mouths to feed, right? And the underlying presupposition is children are an expense, they're a liability, they take away from your time and your toys because you've got to spend time with them and buy them toys. Whereas here the Bible says, oh yeah, they're around the table and yeah, you're feeding them, but no, these guys are olive shoots, they're not mouths to feed, they're olive shoots, I didn't know this. You think I would, this would be something they taught in seminary because the olive plants like all over scripture. I didn't know this. But children are investments is what this verse is saying. The olive plant is an amazing plant. Apparently, you have to plant this thing and you have to cultivate it and tend it and take care of it actively for about a generation. About 20 years, you have to take care of this olive plant. And then, if you did it right, it produces olives for centuries. There are still olive plants in Israel that they've carbon dated that go back to the time of Christ. I did not know that. I read that. It's like, I'm sorry, I need to see that source. And I found the original source. Who knew? What a great picture of children, biblical view. You spend a generation cultivating and raising them, and then all of a sudden they produce for centuries as opposed to mouths to feed here is something that feeds you he promises that those who fear him those who walk in his ways god will give them security for the future children were god's social security program and the promise is you raise them for a generation and then they will take care of you so if you'll allow me the here is the prom- promise of enjoying each other as a young couple the way young couples do and then enjoying yourself as an older couple with security and prosperity all of your life being blessed in your family because you fear the lord and walk in his ways what a fairy tale 
How dare God put that in front of us if it's not true? Now, a couple things I need to say at this point. One, for some of you in the room, this picture of an ideal family is a fairy tale. We have been there. I understand. As I've said before, Nikki and I were told by several doctors for several years we would never have children. I know the feeling in your heart of hearing this fairy tale. Some of you are single right now and don't want to be. Some of you are single again and really don't want to be. Instead of having this picture of an ideal family hurt your heart, remember this imagery goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God is showing the glorious blessings he always intended for his people to have. Security, pleasure, happiness, joy, it's available for his people. In his providence, you may not be experiencing that right now, but be patient. This promise of the gospel is for all of creation. In the gospel, God is making all things new. The picture at the end of Revelation is heaven comes down to earth and replants Eden, if you will, and makes it better than it was before. He's bringing Eden back by his grace. He will make it new, and you will experience this promised joy in the arms of Jesus when he comes back one day, someday. This promise is for you too. Until then, right now, today, you're part of the body of Christ. You are part of the family of of the redeemed. This is your family. Rejoice in the children around this table. Rejoice in your brothers and sisters. We love to have you as part of the family. Don't be alone. And I want to get real practical here, okay? Thanksgiving's coming up in a few weeks. And our family is way far away. They just can't, it's just impossible for them to come and make it for Thanksgiving. And I want my kids to have the big Thanksgiving that I remember growing up with. So if you don't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving, if you don't have any family around, I better not hear about you sitting alone on Thanksgiving. You come to my house, okay? I'm going to fry a whole turkey like they taught me in Mississippi. It's awesome. You'll love it. I actually put a whole stick of butter inside of it. It's great. So, because, you know, turkey needs more fat, right? So anyway, you're going to love it. Come to our house and make pumpkin pie. It's going to be a ball. Don't you sit at home alone when you're part of the body of Christ if you don't have this in your life right now. Enjoy this through the church. The second thing, this ideal picture of a family, it's simple. It's ordinary. It's not extravagant. And it's joyful. This couple actually liking to be around each other, actually enjoying each other, Growing in faith with each other, it's a joy, but it is not a perfect picture. And experiencing this is not perfect. There's challenges, but there's a joy and a blessing that permeates this all. Please don't think, well, we sometimes have a problem getting along. We're not experiencing this. Well, yeah, you probably are. There's going to be some buff, rough patches. But the question is, do you have this kind of joy in your home? It is a promise from God to his people who walk in his ways. It's a promise. If you are a Christian and you don't have this in your home, look into your heart and ask, where are you not fearing him? Where are you not walking in his ways? Ask him to show you and then ask him by the gospel to give you the grace to repent and change. Because you can't do it by yourself. This is not okay. Find out what you're doing wrong and you better suck it up and do better. No, this is, Lord, I stink at this area. Loving my wife like Christ loves the church who gave himself, but I like my stuff and my time. Lord, would you help me be more like Christ because I can't do it. Live the gospel out in this. Fear the Lord and walk in his ways and you will experience this joy. 
Again, I ask you, if you're not experiencing that, where are you not walking in his ways? The Holy Spirit probably just showed it to you. Repent. Ask for strength to walk in faithfulness in that area. I mean, look at the blessing offered to you in this. And if you do have this in your home, great. What about your neighbors? You think they want this kind of picture in their marriage, in their home life? This is the hope we have to offer people in the gospel. Take this to your neighborhood. This is real, practical hope that people are dying for. Now, just to make sure we don't punt this into fairy tale because it's too good to be true, verse 4 puts it right back into our face. I want everybody to look at the kids' translation of verse 4 to make sure we really understand this. Here's, here's how we translate it for the kids. This is the happiness, verse 4, this is the happiness God promises to those who really worship him. Again, this is the happiness God promises to those who really worship him. Daily satisfaction, happiness is what God promises his worshipers to those who fear them. What is it you fear? What is it? that you are walking after, that you are walking in its ways? What story for happiness are you giving your life to? Whatever it is you're looking to for satisfaction, for happiness. If I can just have this, if I can just attain this, if only this were different in my life, then I could rest and be happy for a little while. What is it you're doing that to? For you today in 2014, it may not be a wife and a kids and a happy home life, but you have a dream in your heart of what it means to be happy. The creator says he can provide that for those who fear him, who walk in his ways. Whatever it is you're looking to, can it make that promise and back it up? Because this psalm promises living daily in the gospel brings the hope and the happiness that you want and you pray for. And so finally, what should we do then? We'll pray for it. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. He switches from describing it to actually praying for it. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. All that good stuff. I hope you get, is what he says. He proclaims blessing upon the faithful person. Let's look at the at kids' translation. The first part of verse 5. Here's what he says. He says, look, I pray that the Lord blesses you like this. That's what he's praying for. All that good stuff, all the hope, all the ideal fairy tale picture. says, I really hope you get that in the Lord. And he says, from Zion. And there's a reason, he says, from Zion. That's the special religious name for Jerusalem, where the temple is, where God came down from heaven and met with his people, was Zion. This is how God blesses those who fear him and who obey him. We need God's power to walk in God's ways, and we cannot do it on our own. And so he says, may he bless you from Zion. It's the equivalent to the New Testament coming and saying, may God bless you in the gospel to have a happy life. That through the power of God coming to meet with you on your level, that by the power of the Holy Spirit given to you by the work of Christ, may you be set free from sin and empowered to walk in God's ways and therefore blessed because you fear him. That's what he says, that little phrase from Zion. That's all wrapped up in that little prayer. Again, if we are responsible 
to make ourselves obey and fear God. This is a fairy tale. We have no hope because we are sinners who hate God's law and don't want to obey him. If you don't believe me, we said it as our confession of faith, right? There is none who is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. If God only says to us, I will bless you when you walk in my ways, that's a tyrant, not a heavenly father. But the prayer is, may the Lord bless you from Zion, from the place where he meets with his people, from the place where sinners can come to him and find grace, from the cross of Jesus Christ, we can be changed and we can cry out, oh Lord, by your grace in the gospel, will you bless me and bless your people? Dear Christian, do you pray that way for yourself? Do you pray that way for your family and for your church? Because living daily in the gospel brings the hope and the happiness you want and you pray for. So let's wrap this up. He ends with a blessing. It says, peace be upon Israel. Peace, not the absence of war as we think of peace, but think of it more like wholesomeness. Not being fragmented in your life, but just being at rest, having satisfaction and harmony. That is what's offered to you in the gospel. Because Jesus Christ left the peace and satisfaction and wholesomeness of his father's home. He entered into our world of strife and pain and discomfort. And he lived the life of obedience God demands of us in his holiness. That God says, do this and live. And we did not. And so we die. See, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of this psalm. He feared God and he walked in his ways all of his life. And in doing so, he received the blessings promised in this psalm. He was fulfilled to do his, father, his father's work. He was blessed with the beautiful bride he enjoyed. And thousands of years later, his table is full of children who show his ministry was fruitful. Oh, but in his great love with which he had for us, Jesus Christ did not sit back in his blessings and say, yeah, I did it. No, he took that blessing and he gave it to those who needed it so desperately. To those who believe in him, who confessed his name, he said, you can have my blessing and my righteousness and I will take your sins all the way to the cross and I will die for them so you don't have to. He died the death we should have died for our sin before a holy God. And so Jesus can proclaim, you have peace with God because his peace with the Father was broken for us. And in his resurrection, he conquered death and he earned eternal life for his people. That's the gospel. That is a holy and righteous God who will not stand sin, whom we should fear. And he loves us so much that he gave his only unique son and he says, believe in him. Believe that he died for your sins and was raised for your life and you will be saved. And God will bless you. Do you know Jesus Christ like that? Are you living in that blessing if you say yes? Because it's offered to you right now, today. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And this psalm, everything it promises can be yours. It's not a happily ever after fairy tale. It's a happily ever after gospel promise. Let's pray together. Father.